Hello and welcome back to the Comic Lyra podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, and penny dreadfuls. I'm your host, the soon-to-be-known-as Kamukstan, and with me as always is my jovial co-host, it's Jamie. Hello, mate. Jovial as always. Jovial as always, baby. It's always a Monday when we record and I'm always in a fantastic mood. To be fair, this improves my Mondays, so... Aw, mine too. Cool. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Sit home and loll about the fact like, oh, I've got four days left to the weekend. It's like, nah, let's just record a podcast. Yeah, let's just get into it. And speaking of, how are you doing? I'm really good. I mean, it's a lot. It's been a long weekend here in the UK, isn't it? Yep, it's been a not to give too much of a clue of when we how far in advance <laughs> we record these, but it's been a bank holiday. So it has been a bank holiday. If, if you want to do the research for the non-UK people, if you want to do the research to find out when we record, by all means, get get your big board up with all the the string. clippings <laughs> and the string and the. The Charlie from Always Sunny and all that. Well, Jamie said he was in a bad mood, so it must have been a rainy Monday. I mean, is that is that all that it takes to get in a bad mood, or is that... No, I quite like the rain. Yeah, rain is fun. Rain is good. I'm a Norfolk boy. We like rain around here. I mean, we have to, or you're just going to be depressed all the time. Yeah, well, you know, rain means a good harvest, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it does mean a good harvest, whether that still applies in the modern day or not. I have no idea. Rain means my turnips are going to grow, my man. But... <laughs> <laughs> Why would you mention our na- our, our county <laughs> slogan like that? So for our, for our non UK listeners, they might not quite understand <laughs> all that, or even our non Norfolk uh, potentially non Norfolk listeners. You know what Norwich's slogan is? Uh, what is it? That's fine, city. <laughs> yeah, that's... and then Norfolk's is Nelson's County. Yeah, what? Like we picked one interesting person. <laughs> And just named our entire county. I mean, we had a limited pool to choose from, let's be honest. It was him or Stephen Fry, and I think they named it before Stephen Fry was born. Exactly. They could be like, let's give it another few (laughs) years. Maybe someone in Morichuk will be born soon, and they'll (laughs) they'll do something. You know, I was listening to an American podcast, and they mentioned uh, British people because a uh, wrestling show was taking place in the UK. And the way one of them referred to British people, because British people were basically like arguing online about the quality of this card, the wrestling show they were getting. And... One of the American listeners referred to the British people. It's like, I know the f- you know for fans of the podcast, the the beans on toast people. And I was like, <laughs> I went full James A. Cast. I was like, never have been so offended by something that I hundred percent agree with. Like that is an accurate yeah. representation of the British people. Yeah, hundred percent. We are the beans on toast people. I don't I- think any other country has or any other culture has beans on toast. No, it's foul as well. I mean, it depends. Like, you get some sauce in there, maybe some lean parons, a bit of cheese. Like, it can be something. Baked beans are foul. Depends which beans you're eating. Also not British. That's surprising. They're American. Heinz is an American company. It was an American invention. But if you say beans in America, they think like, like, a, like you know, like the bigger beans. Barbecue beans that come yeah, with barbecue. Exactly. Yeah. Which I've heard are really good because they have pulled pork in them over there. Well, yeah, it depends what you add, isn't it? But baked beans is like straight from the can, don't add anything else. Like that's that's the British way, isn't it? Unseasoned. Unseasoned. That's, <laughs> to, to describe England better than calling us beans on toast people, just call us unseasoned. That is like... <laughs> sums it up perfectly we're deeply cultured but unseasoned yes exactly <laughs> so this week you might have seen from the unusual title that uh oh, actually i think i need to uh check my notes real quick here because it seems this week we seem to be doing a uh, an educational comic yeah this is educational con- <laughs> this is edutainment <laughs> edutainment not edgy entertainment which is also us sometimes this is edutainment i've been pushing for over a year 
And finally, I've got some edutainment in there. I'm very excited. Folks, this is the only way I could keep him recording. <laughs> this is the only way I could keep him on the podcast. <laughs> this is such a Jamie episode, isn't it? So this week we are talking about the graphic... Um, graphic novel adaptation? Yeah, graphic adaptation. I've got a blurb. Do you want me to... Uh... Of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harai. You want me to do the little blurb for the... Go on, then. Because this is the non-fiction one, so this isn't you having to sum up the story, so I can do a this little... This is you having to wrestle with the big words. <laughs> well, I mean, I copied... I mean, I copied it. I got the pronunciations of the name, so let's see if we get that correct. So, Sapiens, a graphic history, is an epic radical adaptation of... Uh, sorry, adaptation of Yuval Noah Harari's best-selling book into a graphic novel series bursting with wit, humour, pop culture references, and colourful illustrations. Harari, his co-writer, has teamed up with renowned comic artists David Vandermeulen, co-writer, and Daniel Casanave, Casanave, illustrator, to retell the story of humankind in a way that will captivate all adults and young ch- adults and young adults, including those who don't usually read science and history books, which is right up my alley, because I do not read those. No, and I do. <laughs> yeah. I actually said to someone at some point that someone asked me, uh, oh, when's the last book you read? And I had to think back to a proper book. And I mentioned Sapiens. They're like, oh, you read Sapiens. I had to do the, well, I'm reading the comic book <laughs> adaptation. And you could see the, oh, <laughs> in their face. Didn't mention why I was reading it. I think what really amused me here is that the speaker, like the narrative voice mm. of... Um, Mr. Yuval? Harari. Yeah, we'll, 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 we're on first we're name. Not, we, yeah, we're, we've read his work, so we're on first name. We're on first name terms now. Mr. Harari. So Yuval addresses the reader directly, obviously, in the book. Mm. Whereas in the comic book, he does so via his pre-adolescent niece. And I think that's really funny because it's like, it makes it very clear that he's like, ugh, you weren't switched on enough to read my book. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> To be fair, I was going to make the point that it's a great vehicle for the entire comic book. No. So one thing to get across straight off the point, I, we're not going to get into the like deep, like the context of the scientific. Uh, well, not if Ryan can help it. I'm all for it. I'm gunning for that. Well, my <laughs> argument was that this isn't the podcast to do it. I think that the problem is is there's much more learned people than you than you or I. Oh, certainly. Who would have a much better take on the actual like sustenance of the writings? Here. Yes. But what we can do is we can judge it on how well it conveys the information by the medium that we know very well. So, so that's the, what for we're reference. Into. I have read the book. Which you have a different perspective going into the comic. Yeah, absolutely. I read the book a few years ago, and it is everything that it's cracked up to be. Fully deserved to be a bestseller. I thought it was probably one of the best pieces of populist nonfiction I'd read for a long time. Maybe since, like, it was, yeah, it was the best piece of populist nonfiction I'd read since Natives and Chavs. Mm. And that puts it on, like, a pedestal of popular nonfiction. Those are both fucking excellent. Um, and this was really good as well. Very dense, though. <laughs> yes. And so, first off, impressions. I would say it was a great comic for uh, conveying the information that it has. Yeah. We're going to get into the techniques and the little tools and devices that it uses to do that. That you know, it kept things interesting. The illustrations, which are all hand drawn apparently by the artist. So there's a video I saw on YouTube, and you can literally see if you 
So I was searching the artist's name to get the uh, pronunciation. Yeah. Because my cheat code for that is if if they if they've been interviewed on YouTube, yeah, 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 some yeah. host goes, and now my guest, and then I'm like writing down like the, the <laughs> phonetic, the phonetic uh, <laughs> writing. Yeah. That's good research. That's yeah. sage. It takes me like whole ten minutes, so it's the least I could do. Absolutely. But um, with him, I found a video on uh, Mr. Harari's uh, YouTube page. Yeah. And it had uh, the artist literally doing a hat, like doing one in kind of a sped up video so you yeah. see him literally drawing one of the pages from the comic so and they do look great don't they they look great they they have the newspaper comic vibe yeah definitely which, which, which I, we've not really delved into yet have we no and i think it works very well with educational stuff or like you know like non-fiction stuff because it gets like a it makes it feel a bit more relaxed you know you're not worrying like it doesn't look like something you need to like pay hard attention to and yeah. i think that conveys the information well especially if someone who's picking it up who doesn't know any of this information which is why you'd be reading something like this in the first place yeah absolutely and you made a point earlier that um off air that the comic was uh you said something along the lines of um was it a criticism of the book that it was like that it wasn't strictly a scientific written text well no so i just i've discussed this book with a bunch of people right um, because I really wanted to talk about it when I read it. It was really interesting. And I have subsequently spoken about it with some people who have an- anthropology degrees. And they said that certain, anth- like, certain people in the anthropological community do question some of what he says. Right. And so this is very much... I mean, he, I mean, he, he comes out very early on. He he makes it quite clear in both the book and the comic book that he's not an anthropologist or a scientist. Yes, and he says that right at the top of this. Yeah. He's a historian. And so what he's doing is taking the anthropological history of humans and presenting it as a history, as opposed to as a hard piece of science. And I think that's what makes the book so interesting is because he's taking something that would usually be reported as science and reporting it as narrative. Yeah, And so I don't think that means that any of it's apocryphal. Um, because he is very good at citing his sources, because he is a university professor. Mm. So he is a scholar, and it's very scholarly in the way he presents it. But of course, to, do, to, to, to undertake a history of humanity that is as far-reaching and as broad as this, there are points where it has to lack depth. And I think mm. that's what they were commenting on. And, but that's the critique of people who are used to reading scholarly articles, which are by their nature very, very specific and very deep. Very clinically written and just conveying pure information only. Well, yeah, that, but also on a very narrow topic. Mm. So you wouldn't write a journal article that covered the entirety of human history from our evolution, from our shared ancestors with the other homos. And uh, technically from the Big Bang to now. Yeah, 100%. Like, it's a huge undertaking. And I think it's the same critique that people have of all populist scholarly work Mm. the same critique that people had of stephen hawking's work it's the same critique that people have of brian what was his name brian brian cox Cox. yeah brian cox's work and neil degrasse tyson to a degree and neil degrasse tyson yeah absolutely these populist academics who are actually trying to convey these huge ideas to a wider audience the scholarly community will sometimes say well you've you know you've oversimplified that or you've taken some depth out there and you've made that seem more simple than it needs to be but of course you have to do that when you're writing something this big and also you're not writing it for a scholarly audience you're writing it to become a bestseller which this did yeah 
and and in a more pragmatic way they are trying to convey information to people who might not normally be into this kind of stuff yeah, and absolutely. to be like hey here's some information that i've translated from the very clinical you know scholarly writings and i've presented it in a way where you can understand it and the other thing is he's condensed information from a lot of different fields so the 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 we're 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 kind of we read maybe the first 80 to 100 pages of the comic we didn't read all of it because it's huge isn't it yeah i mean i've got a i've got my copy of the book in front of me it is a about 460 470 page long book so to take that amount of information and spread it out over comic books it needs to be vast and Mm. so we read the first 80 pages of the comic which to my mind translated to maybe the first 20 pages of the book yeah but what i think helped is that the techniques and everything the book uses are very evident over the 80 pages oh yeah absolutely i think i think i got a really great idea of what they were trying to achieve there Mm. um particularly if somebody's read the book and kind of saw the difference in presentation i was like yeah i get it i get what they're doing and the point i was going to make was the fact that this is a kind of book that again makes a kind of narrative think maybe that's what made it like any not necessarily easier but like a more obvious book to translate into the comic book adaptation or graphic novel adaptation because this comic or graphic novel whatever has a narrative that i think is exclusively uh used to get across the information in a way that people will understand where the character is the writer mr harari and he's talking to his niece who is asking all these questions about humans and society and where we came from and everything but the fascinating thing is that he brings in to the people that he sourced and the people whose like actual hard academic work he references in the book he brings them in as characters exactly and that's so clever isn't it yeah that's such a great way of giving lending it credence it personalizes the information yeah absolutely so the the opening passage for instance goes really goes quite deeply into um zoology and classification of animals and the way that animals are organized in orders and classes and species and subspecies and things like that and the point that they're trying to get across is that we think of homo sapiens the species that we belong to as being the only humans but actually homo is the latin prefix that was given to all animals in the order human and then one but you know one step below that is us homo sapiens but there was also neanderthals and all these other different types of human that we possibly coexisted with possibly genocided we're not 100 percent sure but he brings in the zoologist that he references in the book as a character in the comic book to help explain that and i think that was really beautifully done yes 100 percent. and just a side note if uh you know obviously reading this as a adult person trying to become educated but you have to admit that it's never not going to be funny seeing the words homo erectus. Mm. It's just not. And it's it's something I feel like if someone reads this, go, am I all right for laughing at that? You can't help it. It's it's ingrained in our DNA. But I think this is the thing. It kind of lifts the curtain back on the language and the mm. fact that homosexual is a term that derived, homo derives from, derives from the Latin expression to mean the same as. Mm, yeah. Um, and so all of the hu- all of the early human species are classified in the order Homo because they were all the same as us. They were all human, right? Um, and yeah, no, I get it. Homo erectus is funny. <laughs> yeah. Like, and speaking of humor, obviously that was not intended humor. That is just us being children. Yeah. But the there are little bits of humor which I I wouldn't describe any bits necessarily as like 
properly laugh out loud funny but they are they add a levity to everything which keeps it very interesting and especially yeah. a younger audience i think would like if you would gave this to a child like that kind of if they can grapple with some of the more complex terms and um concepts the humor can keep them engaged as well this would be a really advanced reader like if you were giving this to a child i would say that you could comfortably give this to a relatively bright secondary school child yeah like you know kind of for our listeners in other parts of the world secondary schools high school so like maybe adolescent Mm. you could give this to like an adolescent teenager and they'd be able to make sense of it Mm. in a way they might not actually be able to make sense of the book because the book is quite the book's funny and it's interesting but it's dry because it's anthropology and anthropology is quite dry unless you're into it yeah and again this comic just adds a little bit of life color and levity to everything and it's beautifully illustrated as ryan was saying Mm. i didn't know it was all done by hand but now that i think back to the illustrations they are gorgeous yeah but the other thing is because this was a piece of like not scholarly work but because this is a piece of non-fiction one of the things that the illustrations really strive to do is be accurate and so when you're looking at those illustrations of all the different species in the order human all the different types of human as well as us they're all pretty nailed on for what we think those people actually looked like. Well, uh, I was actually going to make the point that there does seem to be distinctly two styles of drawing um, people and animals. And yeah. it's either a realistic one, because as you say, they're demonstrating something or they're showing examples of or something. And then when it becomes less about being visually accurate, it then slips into more the cartoon newspaper cartoony vibe. Yeah, And I think it's important it does that because you can tell just intuitively you go oh this is like hard example like this is like realistic this is this is you could quote this and then the cartoony stuff is you know keeps it fun and interesting yeah and and there are some really fun specific techniques that are being used here that you do see pop up in popular superhero comics mm, yeah so the metafiction thing you mean the what breaking the fourth wall well no so breaking the fourth wall and metafiction are two different things right so in in the purely classical sense, when you are like a, you know, when you're assessing literature at like a university level or like a scholarly level, metafiction is fiction within fiction. Right. And so the moments where the little girl shows her comic book and it all becomes a bit more cartoony mm. because they are using a comic within a comic to demonstrate some of the ideas that are being displayed yeah that's metafiction in my opinion or a common thing here was uh reality tv shows oh wasn't that so clever yeah yeah it definitely it, it made light of like some of the more drier concepts yeah turning like evolution into a game show and things yeah. like that what the sense i kind of got from it and this might be a weird take for anyone who doesn't know the the reference but it reminded me a lot of the original like cosmo cosmos tv show with <laughs> carl sagan <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. so they would literally not necessarily they wouldn't do like reality TV show and stuff, but there was this like fictional ship that would like fly to stuff. I, I'm more going by the Neil deGrasse Tyson reboot, yeah. but they would like travel to these places and observe physics and like amazing things happening. And that's definitely a feature of like educational TV content pitched at children, isn't it? Yeah. There will be a vehicle through which somebody goes to explore something. Great example of that. Really vintage British example is Mr. Ben. Yep, yep, I remember that. He used to like always like fly to a different place or something in a plane, was it? No, Mr. Ben went to a clothes clothes shop. That was it. He tried on yeah. an outfit and then through the back of the changing room went to a place. 
but he would like explore the jungle and he'd go explore these different places. Is that a white man in the jungle? Absolutely nothing could go wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, if you're not British and you've not seen Mr. Ben, it's a great time. I'll tell you what as well, more recent reference. It reminded me a little bit of Horrible Histories. Fuck yeah. Oh, Horrible Histories was so good. Horrible Histories was good. Did you read the books as a kid? Yeah, I had the Horrible Science as yeah. well. So I was more of a science than a history, but like it, it did all the same stuff. I, I, I had both. And oh man, Horrible Histories was so good. Do you know a lot of the guys who wrote that are proper serious historians? I I assumed that because they had the information. What I liked was that a lot of the uh, actors in it were like like be- became bigger comedy actors. Yeah. So how not often do you get kid show actors going on to like bigger and better stuff? Yeah. But that's how good horrible histories was. Was like adults were like, oh, this is actually funny. Yeah. Like it's still that childish humor, but when it's top tier of that style. It, it appeals to a wider audience. The best of anything is good, isn't it? Exactly. And I, I think this was, if not directly inspired by it, it, at least indirectly inspired by this kind of style. Yeah. I Especially mean, with the humor in the background. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the things that I've been kind of thinking about a lot since I read it is why hasn't this been done before? Why, why, don't, why don't we present more of our adult nonfiction as graphic non-fiction right because this works Mm. as far as i'm concerned this is a really great way of conveying the big ideas that he's grappling with because again um you know one of the last pieces of non-fiction i read we talked about it a lot on the podcast because it became a big joke amongst my friends was the book about cod right yep yep and the uh, the way i see it there are two ways that you can do non-fiction you can either take something really specific and really examine it in such a way that you start to see aspects of the world outside that thing come into play, right? Right. So through the through studying COD really, really heavily, you start to see aspects of like Empire come uh, through. Just and clarify, you- again, we're not talking about the Call of Duty game, we're talking about the fish. Yeah, but if you look at anything deeply enough, you'll start to find that the place in which that thing interfaces with the rest of the world is interesting and it's you see history right mm. what yuval harari's done here is zoom all the way the fuck out and look at the entirety of human history all in one go and so the idea of having something that broad that that's that's a huge topic isn't it presenting it in this graphic medium makes it more easily digestible and so I, th- I, I, think, I think it was a really great idea. And then I kind of think about the level of scholarship, because of course, you know, when you're consuming nonfiction, you, really, you, you have to consider how good your sources are. Like, how good is this source of nonfiction that I'm reading? How well sourced is it? How true is it? Or is it largely apocryphal? And I think about the levels of scholarship in this, and I think, well, it's no less scholarly than a really well-made BBC Nature documentary. This is this is probably this is as scholarly as David Attenborough's work. Yeah, and I I hold that in really high accord. Yeah, you yeah. know, I actually made the note. I called this in my notes the perfect example of nonfiction translated into comics. Yeah, I, like you can you can have your takes. I think on like the writing style or the the humor or whatever. But this as a as a blueprint is, I think the the base blueprints to work by but if someone else was like i want to make an educational comic i'd be like read this one <laughs> and use that as a jumping off point 100 percent, yeah because it's so good isn't it it do- i do have a question for you though ryan well one thing before your question i was quickly say when you say about covering the whole topic one yeah. thing that made me think is 
because it's aimed, I think, at young young adults. Whenever I th- what made me think was when a young adult, if you once they're presented with like evolution and all that teachings, I think a young child to young adult could quite easily then turn around and go, okay, so how did uh, humans evolve from monkeys? This, I think, is it's such a long text, but it covers that entire point because that's such a common question from yeah. kids and young adults first on evolution. And it's such a common misconception that we evolved from monkeys. And not alongside them. And this answers it really beautifully, doesn't yeah. it? That was like a Christian thing where so it's like, well, if we evolved from monkeys, then how come monkeys are still here? It's like, read this book. Yeah, that's read why. this book. What? What? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of fascinating that he said, and he put it quite aptly, that the same pre-evolutionary animal that both us and the monkeys evolved from could have given birth to the last, the last one of its species before they started becoming chimps, and also the last one of its species before we started becoming us. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's mind-blowing. And the idea that there was a point in time that us and the other humans were able to interbreed a little bit mm. sometimes and produce fertile offspring but then our evolutionary paths diverged enough that we weren't the same species anymore fascinating because there's there's so there's an idea presented in the book and again i don't we don't i don't want to get too heavy into the science of it but i think this is a really great example of how well the scholarship is dealt with so there is an idea that there were different species of humans mm that existed alongside early early Homo sapiens and that they were localized to different parts of the world and there was some interbreeding between those humans and the early Homo sapiens that lived near them that have that were a contributing factor to humans looking different from different parts of the world. I actually I picked up on that bit as well. And if if I was like if I was gonna mention any actual of the science that was going to be the part because i saw that and thought that's a great explanation for why just different features in different races yeah and i think and and but again it it goes into that theory and it's one of two theories that are still being debated by anthropologists Mm. right there's a new bit of evidence that will affirm one or the other every once in a while yeah well this is it yeah and they're two kind of they're two convergent ideas that that currently exist but the reason that anthropologists really pushed away from that idea that different homo sapiens from different parts of the world have different bits of other human genuses in our genome is because wouldn't that be fucking convenient for the racists but so i thought about that yeah do you want to say a bit more before before yes, i give a because because that because that was a huge idea during empire the white europeans were genetically different and that we were different species and it really Cran- allowed cranial sizes and all that bollocks yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and, it, and, it, and it, 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 it was like the cornerstone of the argument that people used to enslave other humans right mm. and so the anthropologists at a certain point when even though there's some evidence for that that's fucking detrimental because it it feeds the what it feeds the one thing that we don't want to keep feeding in in humanity so let's draw away from that and the th- I think the thing that's really brilliant here is that it feeds into the th- one thing we don't want to keep feeding in humanity, mm. which is our f- insane aggression towards people who don't look like us. Yeah. And so Harari introduces that idea, but then also talks about the history of that idea and the fact that anthropologists pulled away from it and that there was more evidence to suggest that we just genocided the other humans and that we couldn't interbreed with them. As if that's better. Like, Well, I mean... In the in the long in the short term, in the immediate short term, while we were 
while there were some humans that were busy enslaving other ones, I think it made a lot of sense not to explore too deeply the idea that we had literal different DNA from other species of early humans knocking about in our genome. Mm. Um, and now we're maybe, we're not in a post-racial society, I don't think. I still think racism is very prevalent. Um, but I think we're in a slightly more evolved society. And actually, we're maybe a little bit ready for that idea to be reintroduced, particularly as there's been some recent evidence of, you know, some recent evidence that lends it with at least even a little bit of credence. Mm. But what's interesting is that he is willing to engage that idea, but also willing to talk about the fact, the reasons why the scientific community turned away from it and are now turning back to it. And I thought that was a really great piece of scholarship. So I've got some hot takes on this. And I think I think this is fair enough. I think, like, again, email address, comicliter at gmail.com. Like, if you disagree in any way, please write in. Like, let's, you know, engage and get the discussion going, right? I think got two points. First is the fact, the idea that people could use this. Like, I understand it. I get, like, saying that there's DNA differences between races or whatever, and that people would use this the wrong way. Like, yeah. I totally get where that's coming from. But if you use that as a basis for any of that kind of ideology you're also subscribing to the idea because they're intrinsically linked that the most purest humans are african absolutely so first off if any idiots try and use that as like well this proves that some races are superior to others like you can only be referring to the africans because they they are the the cradle of life like that's where humans come from so if you're talking about pure humans or pure homo sapiens sapiens come from yeah if you're talking about pure homo sapiens look africans like that's the only way you can go at that so the idea because we know the people who would use this the wrong way are Specifically white racists. Yeah. Just, it's the white racists. It's racist yes. white people. That was my first point. Like, idiots would use this in the r- most wrong way. And that's just going to happen with anything. And my second point is, I don't think... I, m- maybe this is an ideological thing. I don't think scientists of any kind should be... Or any scientific, you know, lect- like researchers or whoever... I don't think they should be making decisions on what they sh- like, what scientific theory they should or should not pursue based on people's responses to mm. it. it. I think, like, I don't know if this is a, a, I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion. Like, again, please write in if you think it is. But I, I think scientists should be the community of people who chase the hard facts and the hard data. I and and, and I, yeah, I like, agree with you. I do agree with you. But it brings into question something about science that i think we all kind of like to ignore because we like to think in facts whereas actually science is a set of narratives and that becomes really apparent once you start to study science at a higher level so when you study science in school you are told one thing and it's a story about a way the way a thing works right and then you get into like a level like you know later secondary and stuff becomes a bit more technical this, like later high school for americans yeah, yeah yeah and stuff becomes a bit more technical and you get told actually we kind of lied to you we, and simplified, we simplified it, it. earlier yeah. and, and we created this narrative and now we're giving you a new narrative and then when you get to like university level science you're going to get another narrative for the way this things works and then you get to the postgraduates who are just dealing in hard facts right they are like you get to a certain level in science and you stop being taught a narrative of the way that things work and you start examining facts and figures but even then you're creating a narrative around them would you say that the postgraduates that is that's the point when you go we don't know what's correct all we know is the hard data yeah and this is it once you get a data set 
the next stage, the stage at which you present a data set and you write a paper about it and you present the findings of your experiment, that's the point at which you create a narrative around these data points. Right. Like there are two there are two kind of distinct functions that a scientist and particularly a scientific communicator like harari or like tyson or like cox mike tyson for anyone wondering <laughs> <laughs> he's a very articulate man i'd read i'd read i'd read mike tyson's take on the world um there's something that these people are doing which is creating a narrative around these ideas to present them mm. all science is story it's just modern myth with facts and figures as far as i'm concerned and that's not to devalue science i think we are we are searching and examining the universe to try and find truth in it but i think part of the way we do that is to tell a story about it and it's just i think it depends on the science because if you're talking about like particles or subatomic particles the story it becomes more clinical and then as you as you zoom out right you get more let's talk about subatomic physics do you want me to cut out those uh or do you want me to leave those no leave them in i'm not a fucking physicist (laughs) the way the, the language that we use to talk about subatomic particles we talk about them as whirring and turning and like we, we have bonding no... and separating and yeah. yeah and actually at the subatomic level when we use a term like whirring or spinning it does not mean that but it's a narrative term that we use so that we can understand this concept that's been examined through data points contextualizes it for our our viewpoint yeah but f- even for the viewpoint of the person who is actually looking at those raw data points so those highly educated people are building an experiment to test a theory. A theory is a story that they're telling about the universe. I think the universe works in this way and I'm going to explain it using these terms. Right. And then they test that and they say, yes, those subatomic particles are doing the thing I think they're doing. How do I describe it? They're whirring, they're spinning, they're bonding. The results are in line with the theory. The results are in line with the theory, but they're both narrative theories. Mm. Like it's, it's all narrative, isn't it? The fun begins when they get that they get they get the results to support the theory, and then fifty years later, someone else gets some other ones. Goes well, this is also true, and they go, "Oh fuck, we gotta go back to the drawing board." Yeah, hundred percent. And and so, I mean, I think as humans, we don't like to examine the relative verisimilitude of the things we know too deeply mm. because it brings into question what we do what even knowing something means yeah 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 and 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 that's and that's when you when you deal with high level scholarship that's something you have to think about and so something like this takes all of those ideas from all of these disparate fields that he's working with you know he's talking about zoology and human culture and language and technology towards the end of the book like he really gets into it but he's bringing all these ideas together in a way that can only exist if you create a narrative around them and this actually goes hand in hand with why we're talking about the comic in the first place is the narrative of the comic specifically uh mr harari talking to his niece yeah is literally her asking like a child's questions and the point of the comic and obviously it's the, what is adapted from the book is if you're a normal person who's not a scientist or anything you have these questions that a child would have is the answers as we can best condense them for you and to be fair his niece is an incredibly precocious child i mean she has to be for the story <laughs> it would be like if mr r is like uh hey do you want to know about uh, where homo sapiens come from the kid's like nah <laughs> nah i'm gonna play some fucking zelda bruv <laughs> yeah. so i'm watching markiplier uh <laughs> okay boomer <laughs> <laughs> i do have one question for you yeah we've been playing a game recently with some comics that don't do swears yes so 
there is a theory that was presented by some of the Lord of the Rings cast that a film can be purchased PG-13 even if it has one swear word in it. And so a fun game that I like to play with anything that I read now or watch is that, is this PG-13? Does it have swears? If not, where would you put the one swear? Where would you put the swear? I have got the perfect answer. I'm just going <laughs> to double check the page. So um, so we were talking about, well, I don't think we've actually touched on the page layout yet. Mm. Page layout is all over the place and, I I, and it has to be. Yeah. Because at some points it's giving a lot of information at points. So it yeah. needs smaller panels yeah, to, yeah, 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 to yeah. skip through. Other times it's larger diagrams of like maps or like big examples you know the the monkey becoming the the interbetweens yeah. to the human it has to do these big spreads to get across information right but there's also and i was reading that going ah the page layout is a bit clinical and yeah. it has to be like that's not a knock at it it's just a, an observation of this yeah. style but there's one particular one it's actually the page that i stopped off at before you then told me where you got to and i <laughs> caught up but it felt like a good stopping off point and there's a big one-page spread of uh, of Mr. Hari looking out on a big landscape, and it's generally it's Isn't a it beautiful? it's a beautiful one. Huge credit to the artist. Yeah. I think this is where he got to play a little bit with like you know being a bit more aesthetically minded rather than you know uh, exam like um di- was it diagram yeah uh, absolutely you know what I mean. And in the line, Mr. Hari says uh, he's he's. Finishing, he's capping off talking about humans going off in all different directions and new lands. And he says, they also left behind the last human species. And then it, it's one bubble up here. And then you see this big sprawling mountain cloud thing with him, his back to the reader, yeah. looking out onto it with a one leg kind of hiked up like a proud explorer kind of yeah. pose. Intrepid. And then I would have him say, I was, the line is, they also left behind the last human species. Us. Fucking sapiens. <laughs> that's why I put it. Yeah, that's magic. I think the one for me would be, you know, when the zoologist is talking about the two conflicting theories about whether or not early it's, sapiens w- could breed with the other humans. Was it, uh, I'm trying to remember, it was the, uh, the lovers versus the killers or fighters? Yeah, was that yeah, and it was the other panel where she basically says the other theory is that we basically just committed a bunch of genocide hmm. and it would be we just committed a whole lot of fucking genocide yeah but in a really <laughs> solemn <laughs> sad way yeah absolutely like a somber swear not an excited yeah. swear or an angry Mine was swear. an inspirational swear yeah homo fucking sapiens because if there's anything that i think we would li- i would like to get across on this podcast like across episodes mm. is swearing and especially the word fuck has amazing uh versatility as a word yes it's a beautiful it's it might be the greatest word in the english language and i yeah. say that not just as someone who enjoys swearing and enjoys using swears but again the word contextually can be used in so many different ways yeah 100 yeah, percent. and people just know what you're talking about it can yeah it can be a verb or an adjective or a noun like it can do all of those things you can use it in noun or phrases but it's also a great adjective mm. it's a great word it's and what, a great word what helps especially is that you can use other words like obviously like shit and so on and you can use them in certain ways. And if you try to interplace them, they don't yeah. work. So fuck can only be used in certain ways and shit can only be used in certain ways. There was a point someone made, I think it was on Reddit, that 
it was a uh, some a non-native English speaker learning English, and then he got to learning swears. Yeah, and he was making a list that he like messaged one of his friends about an English speaker, and he said. So there's different types of animal shit means different things. <laughs> and it was like, and it correlated them. Oh, and you yeah. don't, you don't think about it. So like dog shit, bad, bullshit, lie. Yeah. Um, ape shit, crazy yeah. or mad. Uh, there was other ones as well. But like, again, we say this to each other. We just know. That's fucking bullshit, mate. But yeah, you, no, it is so true. But you don't stop to think why the animals, <laughs> certain animal excrement. <laughs> has certain human yeah. attributes to them. Yeah. But there's also, on the topic of swearing, there's a great video, if you can find of Billy Connolly talking about the yes. word fuck. And specifically his example, he says, no matter what language, because th- if you notice, non-English speakers who don't learn English often know, know, fuck. E- know English language swears. And especially the one he talks about, is, it, it, regardless of whether you know English or not, or if you can understand an accent or not, if someone turns to you and goes, hey, Fuck off! You know exactly. exactly you mean. know exactly what. Like the meaning just conveys beyond any kind of yeah. linguistic understanding. There's a really great um, English language book intended for I think Japanese people learning English, which is basically it's a it's a simple English grammar textbook, but every example has fuck in it. Right. And fuck is used in all of the different ways that you can use it. So it's used as an adverb and a verb and an adjective. And it's, do you know what I mean? Like it's used in all the different ways that we use that word. Mm. I think this is a very sapiens conversation, actually. Yeah, because we're talking about human language. And that's, that's, yeah. that's a big part of the, of the comic. Yeah. So he goes into what, what he thinks allowed sapiens to dominate and become the sole breed of human or the sole species of human that survived. We think they think that one of the things that made sapiens so dominant in terms of all the the other human species was actually our capacity for language or communication. So the general consensus now, and this is contrary to, I think, the conversation we've been having about Neanderthals for the longest time, is that Neanderthals had huge brains, Mm. much bigger than ours. Neanderthals were probably smarter than we are, or were, at the time. But one of the things that made humans so proliferated was our ability to communicate and again it's really fascinating that one of the things they attribute that to is us being bipedal Mm, yeah so basically once you stand up on two legs as opposed to four your hips narrow which makes childbirth more difficult and so there was an evolutionary advantage to early humans giving birth to their young a lot younger which is why human babies are so fucking useless compared to other mammals because they are, bloody, they're not they freeloader babies. Well, yeah, because they're not <laughs> as fully gestated as larger mammals are, mm. and there are mammals that are roughly the same size as us that gestate for a lot longer, and their young comes out with a lot more of their survival instincts intact. I say giraffes are like just dropped from a height and as then, are horses, like, yeah, and you know cows and pigs and stuff. And so the idea that actually because we had these incredibly vulnerable young. And that is literally just an offshoot of us being bipedal and childbirth, killing women that went to what originally would have been our full term. Mm. That's terrifying, isn't yeah. it? Um, that we then end up with these complex social structures that need to happen because we need to protect A, our young and B, the women that are caring for the young. I also really love that one of the things they've observed about Neanderthals is that there are a lot of disabled and old ones. Mm. And so they think that Neanderthals were really good at caring for their, like, infirm. 
in a way that early sapiens just weren't. Yeah. Which is really beautiful when you think about it. I think one thing that seemed to help Homo sapiens coming out of uh, Africa and like exploring these other places where other subsection of the homo genus or whatever the yeah. term is were uh where they were was we had a very trial and error approach to like trying to compete with them in the same areas so we would because it said like oh what are the odds that like homo sapiens would be able to you know compete with the neanderthals they hadn't met before and then he says well a lot of research says that we didn't we met them failed a biz- whether it was not able to survive near them or just beaten by them and then we received like failed and left or were killed but the difference was the homo sapiens were actually still coming out of africa to retry so they were yeah. like there was like a video game where they were like re-attempting the same level over and over again and the Neanderthals were just there like they weren't going elsewhere but we were like trial and erroring and like getting better each encounter and this is where the metaphor about human shit comes in because if you throw enough shit at a wall some of it's gonna stick and that's ev- that's evolution <laughs> in a nutshell <laughs> well it is isn't it and i think people have this really skewed idea of evolution again because most people only learn evolution up to like a secondary school level mm. and so you they have this really simplified view of microorganisms fish mammals humans and what they don't consider is convergent evolution mm. and the fact that there would have been a bunch of different even different types of sapiens with different genetic um, mutations all coexisting. And the way that evolution works is that it's not that evolution is this driving force towards a more perfect species. It's a bunch of random mutations happen, and then one of them sometimes confers an advantage, and those ones survive and they're able to pass their genetic material on. Yeah. And that's that's, that's the only way we can explain why there aren't a bunch of other species of humans about. And one of the things that he does delve into, which I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit reticent to enjoy because it's spe- purely speculative and it doesn't really help push an argument along in a meaningful way, it's just quite a fun re- rhetorical device, is he speculates as to what the world would be like if another species of human had survived alongside us. I mean, to be fair, I mean, he's a bit late to the party because they did already cover that in the Mario Brothers live action movie <laughs> because they go to a world where rep the dinosaurs were the dominant species so the 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 creatures the civilization are dinosaur based mm. so you know i mean it's good that mr i got his turn later you know he got to die yeah. into it but the uh examples of some of the stuff that they talk about i thought were really clever in some parts and again it could be hit and miss because they do it they have to do it so often but like the prime example i know it was they speak to the guy, again, we were talking about communication, being like a human, the, the homo sapien tool that got a success was communication between us. And when you first meet this character, so he is the scientist or whatever who, you know, is an expert in this field, he begins their interaction with Harari and his niece by immediately gossiping. And you go, when you read that, and if you don't know what's about to happen, you go, that's an odd thing to put in. And then as soon as he gets into it, like in a, the next couple of pages, you go, oh, that's why. It's a demonstration of a very human trait. Yeah. And, and what the, the scientist argues is a very necessary trait to our success. Yeah. It was gossiping while being like frowned upon at, in, in modern society was actually this uh, a societal tool. Yeah. But being able to trust each other as a community, because someone who was gossiped, like to talk about someone else behind their back, it actually kind of inferred to 
the person receiving the information, who could be trusted and who not. And not just trusted in the person giving you information, because, you know, if someone gossips to you, they're gossiping about you. Like, that's the truth. But also, if someone does a bunch of shit, unless they get very publicly called out on it, people gossip. it's going to be gossip. And you would also notice the people who weren't gossiped about, and and you would think, oh, they must be all right. Either they're all right, or they are very good at hiding the bad shit that they do. Yeah, and it's, and yeah, and... It's so interesting because we often think of things as being disorders, <laughs> particularly when we, particularly with this ongoing conversation about neurodivergence and neurotypicals that's happening on certain social media platforms at the moment, and you know, a whole of a generation deciding they've got ADHD. But thought about in, t- in evolutionary terms, like those types of neurochemistry must have had an advantage somewhere to survive. For those genes to have been passed along, because we we have kind of slowed human evolution down a lot. Well, our evolution, I think, is a lot more cultural now than it is physical. Yeah, we're we're not we're not evolving as fast as a species. Or evolution happens so slowly that since we've had an understanding of it, we've not actually seen it happen. Hmm. Did you hear that thing? There was a thing going around on the internet a while ago. It might still be. And there was someone. T- they were talking about smartphones and kids using smartphones. Yeah. And there was a thing going around the, on the in, in the internet. It was like, oh yeah, because a baby was born, and instead of pointing with their index finger, they pointed with their thumb, and that's bad because of technology. And I read that. I was like, bollocks. Babies yeah. come out. They don't know how to do anything. Yeah. They only learn from looking. So unless you've, they've got parents who are fucking psychopaths pointing at things with their thumbs like that's the only way you get that <laughs> but there's all those little like oh yeah this happened like you don't understand evolution i'm very technophobic right like you know this about me um but also i'm very painfully aware of the the response that i currently have to modern technology being the same response that people have always had in history to every technology. The Luddites. Well, I mean, the Luddites are a very specific group and they were trying to protect their livelihood and I'm not going to devalue the working class struggle by mocking the Luddites. Um, but when books were invented, when people, when, 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 not when books were invented and not when writing was invented. I mean, invented, it must have been invented at some point. But when writing became affordable, when right. writing became reasonable, when the materials that we wrote on became cheap enough and good enough that everyone could write things down. When learning to read and write was not just a, uh, a characteristic of the, of the elite, of no. the upper class. So I'm not talking about when, when everyone was taught to read and write. I'm talking about the point in time where we stopped scratching shit onto tablets that we were right. really heavy to carry around. And when paper and ink was developed, and so you could just jot something down, and scholars at the time said it was going to ruin human intellectualism because we didn't have to remember everything <laughs> we knew. It's going to ruin the stone tablet business. Well, no, Won't it's going to... somebody think of the Masons? It's going <laughs> to... No, they thought it was going to ruin our intellectual lives because right, we yeah. wouldn't remember anything anymore. And then when newspapers became affordable, post-printing press... And, you know, you could you could print something that only needs to last for a day. People saying, oh, nobody, nobody, you know, there's photographs of people queuing at bus stops or reading. And they say nobody talks anymore because we have newspapers. And then we said the same shit about the radio and TV and smartphones and the Internet. Every time we have advanced as a species or we've advanced technologically and a new type of technology has become affordable and thus proliferated through the species. There's always been a bunch of people like me saying it's a bad thing. Like, I'm aware that this is part of a trend. It still doesn't make me like Facebook anymore. I think the problem is, is looking at it in terms of good or bad. Yeah. And really, it's just, it is. Like, it's not, 
like there's always positive and negatives to everything especially advances in human society and culture yeah so to be like that's bad it's like well, yeah but it's, it's also good like it's it's everything like there's to, to some something as complex as a societal shift yeah as good or bad is a very oversimplistic view i mean the the con i mean we've talked about this a lot when we've talked about superhero comics because they are a representation of our juxtaposed ideas about good and bad and good and evil right yeah but they're just constructs good and evil are just constructs they're ways that they're, they're lenses through which we can view human behavior and so we've taken a set of behaviors that we generally perceive as negative because they hurt somebody on a societal level and a bunch of behaviors that generally are positive and ascribe them good or bad but they are just two different behaviors that we have ascribed these ideas onto right i mean essentially good and evil boils down to we like or we don't like yeah like, that's it's pretty thumbs much up it. thumbs down isn't it yeah and yeah and and, the, and and like reading this i mean reading this book the first time around and then more latterly reading the comic has made me think about these things a lot i feel like this is a really thought-provoking text oh for sure 100 percent. and specifically adaptation wise and we've not had a great history with adaptations no, so this is probably the unless we're missing one and we'll do we'll do a best adaptation at the end of, <laughs> at the end of the year and it won't even necessarily be like from 2023 or whatever it'll just be ones that we've read so we'll have like one holding the title for like all the years we do the podcast i think this is a shoe in for this year and potentially for years to come it might continue to hold the title yeah it would take something really i mean the only comic book that we've read that I think even gets close to this in vibe is Mouse. Yes, and also, and that was not an adaptation because that was its a direct. Yeah, like, so it source. was. A, yeah, I suppose I'm thinking in terms of a piece of nonfiction. Yeah, because even though Mouse is fiction, it is kind of it's biographical, isn't it? Yeah, and um, the narrative is constructed even though it happened as it happened yeah exactly exactly and one of the things that we really got into there was how cleverly how cleverly constructed the narrative was and i think that's a feature here is the the narrative around these ideas has been beautifully constructed to convey the information it wants to convey mm. and that's really cool like that's objectively quite interesting isn't it yeah. and again i'm super surprised that there haven't been more of these like i think maybe I mean, there's a couple of people, you know, there, there must be some pop scientists or pop historians whose work would do really well in this medium. I mean, I said this could be an entire series akin to, like we said, horrible histories and, and horrible sciences as well, because you could anthropomorphize, um, you know, any kind of thing like chemicals or particles and things like that. And like you could have, oh, these particles repel each other or magnetism is just two particles who like hate each other or something like that's the, that's me pulling out my ass and I'm not good at this. I actually learned about magnets recently. From Insane Clown Posse? Yeah, <laughs> where I get all my information. Yeah. Um, no, magnets are more interesting. Mag magnets are actually really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're magic, so they have well, to be. Right? They are quite literally magic. Also, the planet is a big magnet. I mean, if you're talking about gravity, yes. No, the planet is a big magnet. Okay. So, some stuff happens in our mantle. Are you talking about the poles? Yeah. Right. But not the Polish. The the the, <laughs> oh, right. the actual poles of the of the planet. So, just for a quick, this is a thing that interested Jamie recently. Right. You know, we have a north and south pole to the planet, and well, there is well, a magnet. Hey, slow down, Brett Poindexter. Hang on. <laughs> let, let me grapple with this. You know, there's a magnetic north and a magnetic a yeah. magnetic south. Right? Yeah. So we number runways in airports on how many degrees away from north they are. Right. 
And so when you approach an airport, you know that the number of the runway you are approaching is numbered based on how many degrees away from north it is. So that if you're coming in and it's foggy and you can't see anything, you can pull your fucking compass out, point to that that many degrees and you're going to land. Right. Right? Like it's a fail safe. It's the way that they're numbered. But <laughs> the Canadians don't use magnetic north anymore. They use true north because the pole is the, the actual magnetic north is moving so much that all of the numbers on their airports were becoming incorrect every five to ten years. And so they were having to renumber their airports, their, their runways, because they were basing them all on magnetic north, which kept fucking moving. Wasn't there a thing a while ago about how the poles switch every, like, hundred? And we think it's coming. Oh, we still think it's coming? Yeah, no, it's coming. Right. It's coming because... Um, I didn't know if it was like the Mayan apocalypse where it happened and nothing happened. Like, Well, we don't know what's going to happen because the last time it happened was... We think the last time it happened was pre-human history. Do you know how they know that they switch? Yes, it is. There, there, there is a big dip in the magnetic force of the planet. So there's a huge change in the magnetic force of the planet that's happening at the moment. And so at some point, the polarity is going to switch. I was actually going to go mention something else. It's yeah. how when they dig deep into the Earth's crust, oh, the, and they have yeah. different, different, you can, there's different layer formations over tens, hundreds of thousands of years. And they notice that with a new layer, or at some point during the layer formation, the minerals would switch direction. So the yeah. minerals in kind of free form would, auto, like, as you say, magnetize and would point to north or south. Yeah. And then as the layers caught up, they would literally dig through these layers like modern day and you could see the layers. They'd switch and then switch and then switch and they go, oh, the poles must like reverse or something or switch places. And that wouldn't have been such a big deal if it weren't for the fact that so much of our technology is reliant on electricity. And electricity is just an expression of electromagnetism. Mm. Like electricity is magnets. They are the same force. I'm honestly surprised that at this stage, we still haven't had a apocalyptic action movie based on that happening. Starring, we cut this out of the podcast so that we can write it? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think that work is beneath us. I think it's too easy. It's like, you just start off, you just go, so The Rock uh, or Mark Wahlberg... One of those. Or Keanu. Keanu's better than that, I think. He, he's got, he loves that choreography. He, but this he, is more of an intellectual thriller. No, it's, it's San Andreas was not an intellectual thriller. <laughs> it was, there's a fuck-off earthquake and The Rock can, is a pilot or something. <laughs> that was pretty much it. What job would... The, the Rock would be a geologist in this. <laughs> the Rock would be a geologist. <laughs> he would not go for that for the obvious reasons i think it would be funny he doesn't want to be typed the rock doesn't want to be typecast <laughs> as the rock guy unless unless he has a great sense of humor which he might and he play it's all like a meme movie basically yeah. the rock as a geologist would just with the on the poster that sell it itself it's fucking great i think i think we've written it I think <laughs> we've got three weeks before this podcast episode comes out. We've got to write the movie before <laughs> then. We're just going to take San Andreas and we're just going to copy and paste. You know how radio plays used to be a thing? Yeah. yeah. We could do an episode of the podcast where we do a dramatic reenactment of our script. Oh no, <laughs> the, the poles are switching. <laughs> ah. And there's like a countdown and the rock has to like do something before it happens. But the problem is, do we go the Hollywood route where we just make it all up? Or do we go the semi-Hollywood route and we like consult a scientist and go, 
So what would happen? Or what do you think would happen? And then we write it like Nobody that. Nobody knows. So if we just make up anything. There isn't a, there, there isn't, there isn't a strong... I'd, I'd say I did a little bit of research on this. So again, if you are an expert in electromagnetism and the polarity of Earth... Or Magneto from the X-Men. Or Magneto from the X-Men, and you know about this stuff, write in at comicliterate at gmail.com because it's something that I'm currently quite interested in and mm. I would love to hear from you. We could do... We could submit a spec script to Marvel <laughs> and it's a Magneto solo series. Whoa! And the for sp- Disney Plus. The pole switch and everything else. That, that Everyone's like... It's like Y2J. It's like, we think some... Y2K. Yeah. Y2J is Chris Jericho from WWE. <laughs> it's like Y2K. And they're like, oh my God, like we have to prepare. We don't know what's going to happen. And then it's all fine. But Magneto loses his powers. And he's like, oh, fuck. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> that would... That's, there's a run in that, isn't there? Yeah, Magneto lost his powers. We and- need to get Tom King on it. Oh, yeah. He's, he's the best. As we could replicate the Tom King style. All we need to do is do um, three by three panels. Yeah, And yeah, we're golden. 100%. Incidentally, there's a Tom King, there's a couple of Tom King books that I'm looking forward to reading. One is an adaptation of Animal Farm. Yeah, Animal Pan, we, which, I'm psyched for that yeah. as well. He's also just starred recently a Penguin solo series, and it looks really fun. What, is in the little orange paperback books? Yeah, he's, he's writing for Penguin. Imagine if he was... I mean, there wouldn't be the as much like panel layout that we could boast. Like. <laughs> he, he couldn't do, and I say this as a big Tom King fan. But if he can't do three by three page layouts, I don't think he does it. Yeah, no, <laughs> is, that, is that in his contract? I mean, you've you've read yeah. Women of Tomorrow, so yeah, no, it's it's all about that. As a side note, you know Penguin Classics. Yes, I'm aware. So Morrissey's autobiography got published as a Penguin Classic or a Penguin Modern Classic from the outset. And the community of writers that have had their work republished as Penguin Modern Classics got really pissy about it. Because, so to be a modern classic, it generally needs to be something that either did really well or was really critically acclaimed or is just really good. And then they, they republish it with a black cover in that imprint. But Morrissey's autobiography got put out as a modern classic from, like, it's the, its first publication was a modern classic. And the community around the, that particular imprint got really upset by it and I'm, i find it hilarious even just from a pedantic like i see where they're coming from from a, a pedantic viewpoint it's yeah. like releasing a film and be like this is an instant classic and you're like you, you, no one's seen it yet like you can't say that and also a film that everyone loves that's just come out is not a classic like it like you say it has to age a bit does it? it's like a it's like a wine or whiskey i think those i think that's how those work yeah roughly yeah but yeah, I see where they're coming from, and also Morrissey apparently is a bit of an asshole anyway. So, oh, I mean, I think I think there's a beauty there's a beauty to the fact that I love the Smiths, right? Like I love Morrissey's poetry, but he is a racist piece of shit. Um, and so like, there's the, the do you know about the thing that he did in America? Uh, no. He turned up to an American talk show with a Britain first bat pin badge on his suit, Ugh. and obviously all the people, all the English people watching, were like oh, I know what that is. That's disgusting. Um, and so, yeah, Morrissey, like, is, yeah, Morrissey's not, Morrissey's not widely liked in the culture at the moment. It's for a, obvious reasons. It's one of those things where, like, yeah, it's all right to be patriotic, but there's a certain level where, even if you're of the same nationality or country or citizenship, whatever, certain level you go, you're going a bit too far now. I had this conversation with somebody the other day and we were talking about how in other European countries they're quite, you know, patriotism in other countries is quite, is a bit more common. And actually 
any level of English patriotism just feels a bit icky. Yeah, if someone's got like a uh, actual Union Jack hung up, oh, it's, God. but you know what's oh. worse? What's worse? Cross the, of St. George. The English flag, yeah. yeah. Like if you if you go north of the border, right, and you see a bunch of Scottish flags, you're like, that's cool. Yeah, good on them. Well, see, Welsh flags, brilliant. Yeah, the Welsh flag's a good one as well. Yeah. Do you know the Irish don't have a flag? <laughs> that's, that's crazy. I don't know. Did you know? Do you know what? There is a flag that is commonly used. But it's not the official. No one's got around to officiating it yet. Well, so it was the Ulster banner, and it was used for like an important royal visit or something in the 50s. But then obviously Ireland stopped being a country in the way it was a country since then because of the troubles and everything that happened. Mm. And when the new country of the Republic of Ireland was established, they never gave it a flag. (laughs) (laughs) And so the Ulster banner is like commonly used, and you'd recognize it. It's a white banner with a red hand in it. And that has a lot of historical significance. And there's like a royal crest with a Scottish lion and a stag and the Ulster Scots are a big thing. So thematically, it all makes sense. And it's quite a good flag. Scottish Scottish flag. Well, no. So there's the, in the Ulster banner. Right, right, right. There's a nod to the Ulster Scots. Yeah. Because obviously there's a, there's a big link between the Irish and the Scottish. There was a lot of migration between the two. Mm. Um, I forget which era. Um, But yeah, there's a big link between Ireland and Scotland, hence why... Um, a lot of Irish stuff is quite firmly linked to the Rangers Celtic thing, which is, you know what I mean? Like there's a big link between all the movements, all the stuff. I won't get into it because it's messy. It's the troubles. Um, but yeah, the the Ulster banner is commonly used as the Irish flag, but it is not the Irish flag. The Irish just don't have a flag, mate. Do you know what the official animal of Scotland is? Yes, it's the unicorn. That's mental. (laughs) It is, yes. That they picked one. I mean, Wales has a dragon, right? <laughs> yes. But I feel like the dragon is a little more like entrenched in law and, you know, historical mythology. I mean, there were dragons in Wales until 1954, until the English flooded that reservoir. Yeah, you've seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know. Snoop Dogg famously was like, I can't believe they uh, made this all this shit happen in previous times. And everyone's like, uh, oh, who wants to be the one to tell them? Oh, Snoop. Be like telling a child that Santa isn't real. Like, yeah, telling uh. Snoop Dogg that we don't have dragons. <laughs> Matt, you, I mean, to be, to be honest with you, if you had that conversation with Snoop Dogg, you know you'd both be out of this world high and it would be magnificent. Yeah, you get high just being near Snoop. I, th- I think that's how it works His now. aura just emanates yeah. pure THC. Yeah. I think I might have to put a time code in the description when we stop talking about the comic. (laughs) (laughs) At what point did it happen, though? It was quite a while ago. I'll listen back in the edit and I'll go like, this seems like the point where it generally the topic stops. Jamie goes on a rant about electromagnetism and flags. And we went from there. Vexillology. (laughs) Do you know, interestingly, on Reddit, there's whatever type of subject or topic or hobby that you can think of reddit has done a thing where there's a circle jerk version Mm. of that same subreddit i'm on the some of the comic circle jerks and it's good to see it's just basically them like shit posting and bitching about or like laughing about you know it's not it's a the opposite of serious yeah the one that surprised me was the vexology circle jerk sub if you want to giggle if you want to look at some bad flags look at the american state flags and there's a country in Africa that just have the worst flag for their counties. 
One moment. You keep talking. I'm going to find them up because they are like well worth a look. I mean, you've absolutely left me hanging, but I'll continue on the subreddit part. Um, if you're looking for a chess circle jerk, for some reason, that one, I mean, there might be chess circle jerk, but you want to go anarchy chess. That's the one where they just do the same memes and jokes over and over again. And I don't know anything about uh, chess at all, but I learned more from the from the shitposting um subreddit than I did the any actual chess information. <laughs> I mean, chess is fascinating. Chess is interesting, but it's too complex for me and my simple mind. It's not though. You you so I play chess and I love chess. You just haven't played enough chess. Because you Almost are, certainly. You are the type of person who would find the world of chess infinitely compelling. Yeah, are you talking about the lore of chess or the actual act of playing chess? Both, man. Like the 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 stuff that goes on in and around professional chess is really interesting. And the way that the game is constantly evolving, but also isn't really evolving because of how good the engine is. Do you know the chess engine? No, obviously not. <laughs> so chess.com is the website that we all play chess on. Okay. Um, and they have a bot. There's, there's an AI that you can play against. And the chess engine is so good now that most grandmasters can't play against it. At its highest level, I'm assuming. Yeah, because, um, you know, you can, you can nerf it and... Mm. and when you go on chess.com, it gives you different players to play against. And one of them's like, he's a dad, but he's nice. And he's te- teaching you how to play chess. And so he'll be really forgiving. And then there is... Much like the comic we were talking about, it, it anthropomized... Anthropo- anthropomorphizes. Anthropomorphizes. Yes, that's what I said. Um, anthropomorph- yeah, it anthropomorphizes the chess engine to be different people that you can play. Yeah. But obviously... <laughs> this is the grandmaster. He's an absolute arsehole and he'll laugh at you when you lose. <laughs> like, well, that's the top level. Magnus Carlsen, who is the, che- the, the highest-ranked chess grandmaster at the moment, he's a right. very, very competent chess player, he made his own app, which is basically an AI that you can play against. Mm. But because, the, obviously, chess games are infinitely recorded, like you can go online and you can get a move-by-move move for every professional chess game that's ever happened, pretty much. Yeah. And so you can play Magnus at 9, <laughs> and you can play Magnus at 12, and you can play Magnus at 18. And there is a video of Magnus Carlsen struggling to beat himself at 12 because mm. he was such a good chess player and the engines can just absorb all of that and play almost exactly the way he would have done at that age. Chess is fascinating, mate. You'd love it. Again, chess is a great... Going back to the text a little bit and talking about anthropology and the Anthropocene, chess is a really beautiful expression of the Anthropocene. Do, do tell. Well, you know, I mean, chess is a game that came from like china and india and then it grew and changed and it became popular in different places and different countries added their own things like um chess became popular in england at a point where we had a queen and so the queen was originally the vizier and it was a piece that had all the same powers as the king only it couldn't be put in check right so it could go everywhere on the board in the way that the queen currently can but it could only move one space at a time right but in that, at that time in England, it became a really popular parlor game. And somebody wanting to curry favor with the queen said, what if we make this piece a lot more powerful and we rename it the queen? Mm. And royalty played the game and royalty loved it. Um, the modern the- version of that would be making the current king's Fortnite character really powerful. <laughs> Imagine is- Charles III with his sausage fingers on Fortnite. That's a one-to-one comparison. <laughs> yeah, is- no, legit. <laughs> like, literally, you are nailing it. 
Um, but yeah, no, and and suddenly the dynamics of the game changed vastly, and it became the game it is now, and it became this incredibly compelling game. And so chess is something that evolved and changed with humans, and it can be seen as a you know it can be seen as a representation of tactical war, but it can also be seen as a metaphor for the class struggle. And different pieces mean different things. The bishops are obviously representative of the church, and the knights are like the um powerful barons and the pawns of the proletariat and so chess is like historically and historiographically really fascinating i have my favorite chess reference which is well there's two one is from the wire when one of the characters i I can't remember if it's d'angelo or d'angelo is the if he's the uncle or the nephew i can't he's one of the two he's a barksdale but he's well the character he's like a mid-level drug dealer in the wire and he has um he has these lower level uh dealers who he's he's showing chess because they're using a chess board at, they're using a chess set to play checkers yeah and he's like i'll show you how to play chess and he's talking about like the uses of all the figures and he talks about the pawns and he said the pawns you can you know just like sacrifice and use to get people into position and that kind of stuff and they're like oh yeah but like what the pawn like got really powerful or whatever and he's like, and there is the thing in chess is a pawn gets the other side, it becomes a queen. Well, it can become anything. Become anything. And a queen, naturally, because it's you the most- You always yeah, queen it, Exactly. Yeah. But they don't get into that, because the, the character D'Angelo is just like, ah, pawns aren't really for that or whatever. Like, they're more for sacrifice stuff. And it's the hidden layer of, you're, you know, you are a pawn level. Like, you are to be sacrificed. That is the, the, the game within the wire. And the other one is- Bunny or Die did the Wire the musical, and they got the <laughs> same actor in this skit, and he does the song of "Chess is a metaphor for drug dealing." <laughs> those are my two favorites. I suppose what's fascinating there is that it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about creating a narrative around facts, right? Mm. Because he created a narrative there that the pawns are unimportant. Actually, once you play a bit of chess, you realize that the pawns are your most important pieces. Because they, the pawn, the pawns are what you use to control the board, so that your other pieces can do what they need to do. And so, if your pawn, if you don't make a good solid structure with your pawns in your opening, your mid game and your end game is going to crumble because all of a sudden there's all these holes in your defenses. So actually, what he's saying is kind of correct. Your pawns are your least valuable pieces, and you can sacrifice them when you need to. And if if it's a choice between sacking a pawn or a higher value piece, you'll generally sack your pawn. But actually, your pawns are what create your structure. And you'll, once you get into high-level chess, it's the pawns that win or lose games. Like, you'll be at an end game, and they'll be like, you'll be watching two grandmasters play. They'll be like, oh, yeah, but he's got a couple more pawns. He's going to win. Because he has got the structure still. He's got a little bit of structure left around his major and minor pieces. And so, like, it's the idea that he had a narrative that he wanted to give these people, and he used chess as an example and made it fit his narrative, even though the facts of that situation were something different. I think two things. One, what you're saying is that Marx was correct. I'm getting from that. and That's <laughs> what I'm always saying, yeah. Ryan. <laughs> Sadly, I think I'm going to put, like, more time codes for the subjects that we've gone on tangents <laughs> on for the past half hour. <laughs> and this one, I think, is just going to say then they talk about chess for some reason <laughs> and that's the title of this part do you know you can you know when you do youtube videos you can break them up and you can actually have little points that it'll like like notches that you can hard fast forward to oh yeah yeah you should definitely do that for this one on the because i don't know if you know this guys this stuff gets uploaded to youtube for some reason <laughs> yeah. 
And pretty much you can add that suffix to everything we do. Yeah. We made a podcast for some reason. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why we do it, but I like it. I mean, we're here now. We're entrenched, so we've got yeah. we to keep going. Do you have any more wider points that can bring us back on topic? I know uh, you always have a list. I have actually somewhat exhausted the list, and that is somewhat to do with, as I said, we were mainly talking about the techniques and the use of devices used within yeah. the comic. But I think we've covered it as extensively as we can from the perspective that we're coming at it. I suppose I have two questions for you. Would you keep reading? I think... So my thing is, like, you know me, I, I'm trying, I'm making effort to keep up to date on not fictional comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for this, I tell you what, if I was going for a non-fictional read, mm. for obvious reasons, this would be probably my first choice because it's that crossover appeal of, you know, understanding, uh, seeing the the visual examples of things. Um and again, it's just an easier read. Like I think I could read the original, like the, oh, the original book, and could, yeah. and go on with it. But I think I generally, I think I, I find that more interesting than um, trying to think of the two. The, I'm trying to think of like two different ways of interest. I think I would find the book consciously interesting, and I would find and I found the comic to be engagingly interesting. Do you yeah, see what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, so it was really engaging and you were still getting what you would have gotten from the book in some way, right? Exactly, yeah. And also, the personalization just makes any kind of conveying information a bit nicer. Mm. Like, the relationship between Harari and his niece, who may or may not exist, we generally <laughs> have no idea, but the, the relationship just makes it a nicer, more enjoyable read. And I think there is going to be uh, unfortunately a bit of a what's it got not a persecution but you know what i mean like a judgment of an adult reading this instead of the book i think there's that's yeah. gonna be a thing and i i personally i think whatever like medium you want to get the information in like do it like you're but, learning like it's only important to me that people learn exactly and it is it is like we don't really get into this like our personal philosophies um but i think education is one of the ways that human one of the things that holds humanity together right like there's a reason that you some of your taxes go towards schools even if you're somebody who never wants kids and it's mm. because living in a society with more highly educated people is always going to benefit you exactly yeah and so like the idea that something as timely and as important and broad and interesting as this book has been condensed into a form that's more easily digestible for people i think is a net positive exactly and yeah i think when it comes to like what method by which you get the information in like this uh, to me this one is incredibly as valid because it, again it's not you're not just searching out the hard facts you are wanting an an entertaining educational read yeah and i don't think uh, again i think we look down on as a society we look down on people who want edu want entertainment with their education yeah but ultimately that's i think that's It'd be if we were more accepting of that as a society, I think more people would be educated. Yeah. I think 100%. there'd be more of an industry behind that type of, yeah. like, that type of uh, li literature. And yeah, so this is, this is a prime example of, I think, why not just young adults, but adults like us and all the people, if you want to, if you want to learn and have fun at the same time, <laughs> you know, that old bollocks, this is, this is a good example of that. Well I think it's really interesting because we look down on it, but then when somebody makes it, the educational community as a whole grab onto it. Well, the educational community are probably the last people to look down on. It's the it's the non-educational 
intellectuals or yeah or the pseudo intellectuals those are the people i think who, they're like i read infinite jest in one sitting like those kind of people <laughs> like have you read infinite jest obviously not it's a hot mess <laughs> i tell you what an infinite jest comic that'd be great <laughs> David Foster, David Foster Wallace is dead now, isn't he? Yes. So we could probably make that happen quite easily. I mean, so we need to commission smarter people than ourselves to interpret it. And Al Ewing, Al Ewing and Tom King together. Oh, Tom King would love that bollocks. I reckon he would be great at it. Yeah. Who's the one that I really like? Alan Moore. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, yeah, obviously. But no, there's one who's who's like popped up a couple times since we've been doing this, who I really liked um he did something's killing the children oh um Tyrion, Tyrion something the fourth or something something Tyrion. the guy I, who did something's killing the yes. children and the he also did a uh, nice house on the lake yeah that guy yeah. He'd but be he, really good at he it. seems to be quite ingrained in his fiction like his are especially i mean they all are to the ones we yeah read, obviously but i mean get bloody get the writer and sorry i'll bring up their names again so we top and tail the episode yeah not harari because obviously he's like very specifically he's this. probably busy doing something else at this yeah point. and he's very specifically this information he did write a sequel though that well then that may, maybe we'll get around to that if uh <laughs> if and when they should get if you want infinite jest for some reason we're on this as a comic <laughs> adaptation or or any educational comic adaptation you could i you should get david vandermeulen and daniel uh Casanave. Get the writer and illustrator, get those two, because they've yeah. done a great job here. And I'd like to see, I'm not so much like, what's Harari doing next? Because that's not as much of the appeal. Yeah. But if they were making something else educational or something else, a nonfiction comic, I'd be very intrigued to see what else yeah. they might do. I, I would love to delve a bit deeper into nonfiction comics, but I just don't think there are that many of them about. There aren't that many, and unfortunately, they don't drive as much traffic to to the, the early stages of this podcast no this was an episode for jim for me wasn't it really for you and also one thing i was going to sum up was if you're a comic reader and you do want something just a little bit different to break up the you know the constant superheroes and even just the the varying you know levels of fiction and different styles and everything like that this feels like a bit of a breath of fresh air to kind of slot in the middle you might yeah. not then suddenly only read non-fictional comics however many there may or may not be in the world yeah but i feel like this is a nice kind of break from fictional comics and this and and, and, I, and I felt like this book contextualized a lot of ideas that i'd seen in other places for me and it brought together a lot of knowledge from a lot of different areas and i think it's a good one just to have in your information diet yeah i think about my information diet a lot these days because of social media um I, I know you do too you're quite conscious about the tv you watch for example yeah, I, which I mean, is you being conscious about your information diet, isn't it? To be honest, mine's more of like a quality diet. Like, and again, yeah. with, with comics as well. Like, I was literally thinking this earlier. I have s such a lower threat, no higher threshold for what I'll no lower threshold, lower tolerance for just bad, uninspired writing. Like, if so, even if it's like since doing the podcast, or just as you get older, bit of both. Because I I would find myself just reading comics. Like, I dropped off comics a bit before we started this podcast and it was because i was reading so many that i just i had this like feeling that i needed to read if they were about characters i like yeah. i just had to keep up with them and it got to a point where i was just like i just i burn out on like trying to keep up with all those comics and then now starting the podcast i was like well, why don't i just read the ones that i actually enjoy and enthusiastic about and again like i i read comics for a bit with you when we worked together because mm. they were they, they they just fitted what i wanted for certain times at the time 
and then only really kept up with like Saga thereafter. Oh, I'm so behind on Saga. Oh, me too. Um, but what like making this with you has definitely meant that there are just more comics in my information diet at the moment. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think this one is like a really just a great read. Like it's just an interesting thing to have read. A lot of big, like big, fun, interesting ideas to grapple with. Like, I just, yeah, I just think if you if you're into comics, it'll be good for you. <laughs> yeah, and I I think even if you don't like the idea of whatever, I, this is one of those things I say: just give it a try. Because even if you only read ten pages, that's ten pages of just information that you might learn and yeah. carry with you. Even if you stop after, then it's just a little bit extra to to take in, as opposed to the same old. Batman, bloody Gotham's in trouble again, or Spider-Man's having a crisis of confidence. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Get a little bit of this, just in between. We're not. Yeah. I'm not telling you to give up anything, but just get get this in your diet a little <laughs> bit as well. This is like uh, this is like uh, a nice apple in between all the not burgers. well junk food for, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I know this has been a bit of a weird episode. It's basically been a. Uh, God, I forgot the title now. A barely literate episode within yeah, a kind comic of. literate episode. Um, so thank you so much for sticking with us. If you have stuck with us till now, please send us an email at comicliterate at gmail.com telling us why you stuck with us this long. Because my God, do we need the feedback. Or why you think we're wrong about anything. Yeah, absolutely. Also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from. We do stuff on YouTube. It's fun. We like it. We think you might like it too. Specifically right now, YouTube shorts and TikTok. For some reason, we've got one short that's just gone absolutely gangbusters on TikTok. Yeah, I know, I, right? I have no idea what separated from the others. <laughs> but We've I'm, currently got a team of scientists trying to reverse engineer that one. I'm happy for the success either way. <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening and good night. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>